Let's open our Bibles this morning to Ezra chapter 9. We'll be looking at the first four verses again this week. Ezra chapter 9, verses 1 through 4. Thank you, brother. After these things had been done, the officials approached me and said, The people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the lands with their abominations, from the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. For they have taken some of their daughters to be wives for themselves and for their sons so that the holy race has mixed itself with the peoples of the lands. And in this faithlessness, the hand of the officials and the chief men has been foremost. As soon as I heard this, I tore my garment and my cloak and pulled hair from my head and beard and sat appalled. Then all who trembled at the words of the God of Israel because of the faithlessness of the returned exiles gathered around me while I sat appalled until the evening sacrifice. Let's pray. Our Father, may we be as appalled at our sin as Ezra was at this confession. May we look into Your holiness And let its light search our hearts to find those wicked ways that are still in us. Those dark thoughts. Those selfish motives. Teach us from your scripture today. Expose our sin to our own heart so that we may Put it to death. We ask that your spirit would do his work mightily in us. And that God, we would not be brought kicking and screaming into your presence. But that we would march joyfully into prayer, into your word into your presence in worship this morning and each and every day. We ask these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, our Savior. Amen. Last week we began looking at this passage, which is crucial to our understanding of the remainder of the book of Ezra and to some extent the book of Nehemiah as well. But please don't hear that last sentence and think that I'll be simply talking about the passage like it's literature to be understood or comprehended. Indeed, we're talking today about the Holy Word of God, not a mere story written by a human author. So when we speak of understanding in relationship to the Word of God, the Holy Scriptures, we must know that understanding always involves obedience. 
If we don't obey, then we have not understood. If we don't obey, we become, as James' epistle puts it, hearers only of the word who deceive ourselves. We dare not think that we have become smarter about the word of God if we have not at the same time been more obedient to that same word. Every passage we read from the written word of God should take us immediately to the question, how should I then live? If we view a passage about sin, we should allow the Scripture to reflect in us, asking the Holy Spirit to show us where we might be guilty of that same sin. If we view a passage about holiness, we must allow the Spirit to use that passage to light for us the way to pleasing God. And so to that end, as we begin to look at this passage this week, you may have noticed that there are many instructive elements in this passage for us today. We began last week with an overview, asking the question, why are these mixed marriages so wrong? Why do they feel like they even need to confess them? And we arrived at a much more fundamental question, what does it mean to be God's people? It is that question we will examine much more closely today in the context of a single phrase that we find in verse 2. And that phrase is, holy race. You recall from the context, from the reading just a few minutes ago, the holy race has mixed itself with the peoples of the lands. And so this word race is speaking of a type of people. It is literally the word seed. The holy seed has mixed itself with the peoples of the lands. And it is this exact term, holy seed, that is used by God in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 13. You may recall that the entire chapter of Isaiah 6 is the account of Isaiah's call to be a prophet. It begins by taking us into Isaiah's vision of God speaking into the temple. You remember how it begins. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of His robe filled the temple. He tells of the angels who never stopped shouting the glory of God. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. He then goes on to tell how he heard God speaking, asking, whom shall I send? And who will go for us? And when Isaiah steps forward in faith, God tells him the message that he is calling Isaiah to preach. And that message is, I, the Lord, am going to judge my people. I am going to judge Israel for the same sin that we see here in Ezra today. They have mixed with the peoples and adopted their ways. They have gone out to the housetops and prayed to the stars. They have bowed their knee to Baal. They have gone to worship Him on every high mountain. And they thought that they could simply come back and worship 
the Lord God at the temple as just another deity. And God says, I will judge them. And so God tells Isaiah in verse 13 after, that after He has judged the nation, there will be a remnant. There will be literally a holy seed that will be His chosen people. We read it in Isaiah 6.13, And though a tenth remain of it, it will be burned again like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. He says, I'm going to take all these idolaters who call on my name and remove them. I'm going to remove that sin from those that are left. There will be a holy seed. And thus when the officials come to Ezra to report this great sin that they have seen among the people and even more importantly among themselves, they are also telling him that this sin is much more grievous than we might originally think because it is being committed by a people that is already chastened. It is being committed by a people who have already been judged. The sin is being committed by those who were supposed to know better. Who had been called back to God. Who had followed Him into the land. Followed the call of God to rebuild the temple. And then they had begun turning to the same idols that they had left behind. Put in terms for us today. It is willful sin being done by people who have seen an abundance of grace and mercy from God. The good news is that these officials understood their peril. The bad news is we often don't. When we return over and over to our sin, after we have been forgiven, after we have been cleansed, after we have received grace and mercy, why would we return? I really don't think that the fault lies in our misunderstanding of what pleases God or what constitutes sin. I think that even those in the world who deny a moral compass, even those who have seared their consciences with the most abominable sins, know that there is good and that there is evil. And even if they hate the light because their deeds are evil, it does not change the truth of what God commands and will one day judge. And among those who may be not so far gone as those who call evil good and good evil, there remains some understanding of the righteous requirements of the law. The problem with those who understand but do not cast themselves upon Jesus is that they judge themselves to be adequate to stand before a holy God. And in that terrible day, the day when we will all stand before God, they will bow dismayed, guilty, and condemned. I think the greatest majority, I think for the greatest majority of American Christians, we've tragically forgotten what it means to be 
a holy race. Because the identification is not confined to the nation of Israel. Put bluntly, a Jewish person is not part of God's holy race unless they are also followers of Jesus Christ. When Simon Peter proclaimed that fact before the Sanhedrin, the Jewish Supreme Court in Acts chapter 4, we are told he was at that moment filled with the Holy Spirit. And he told them there that there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among among men by which we must be saved. It is a travesty against the gospel of our Lord that people have taught over the last couple of centuries that Israel has another path to salvation as the quote-unquote people of God. That they will be saved after some rapture when the mostly Gentile church is removed from the earth. How many Jewish people were not told the gospel of Jesus Christ because Christians believed this monstrous doctrine? And perhaps you may think I'm too harsh calling it doctrine monstrous. But how else would we describe a doctrine that would prevent us from preaching the gospel to anyone? And how much worse a doctrine that would exclude an entire nation of people, a people group, from our evangelistic efforts. Jewish people who do not follow the Lord Jesus Christ must be told, just like every other unsaved and hopeless person, that their sinful state has placed them as enemies of God. And all their efforts to be good will avail them nothing in God's sight because He is holy. It doesn't matter how much they know the law. It doesn't matter how strictly they adhere to the law. It doesn't matter how good they judge themselves to be. Their only hope to stand before the God of the universe on the day of judgment is to recognize their need of a Savior and then turn to the only name that is given by God through which men may be saved. That name, that man, is Jesus Christ the Risen. Only then will the one who turns from their sin to Jesus Christ be truly part of God's chosen people. God told Moses in Leviticus chapter 19 verse 2, Speak to all the congregation of the sons of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. A holy God requires a holy people. And we saw together that if, if you were with us a couple of weeks ago, the law does not perfect us. It shows us our desperate need of a holiness that is not based on our efforts. Our only hope is a righteousness that is imputed to justify us entirely and then is perfected by the Holy Spirit in His work of sanctification. A holy God requires a holy people. And that is the reason 
that Jesus Christ came. We are told in Titus chapter 2, verse 14, Jesus came to give Himself for us, to redeem us from every lawless deed, but then listen, and to purify for Himself a people for His own possession, zealous for good deeds. Why did Jesus come? Yes, He saves us from our sins. He saves us from the guilt of those sins. But His redemption does so much more. He came to make His own people. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. We read this. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. For once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This idea, this commission Peter is expressing here is as far removed from the cultural Christianity we have all been raised with in this nation as day is tonight. If you have been saved by Jesus Christ, He did not save you just to give you a heavenly insurance policy. It was never His intention for you to continue your old life just to to continue your old life on your way to a new heavenly destination. Peter began by telling us that, that Jesus came to call you out to be His chosen race, His royal priesthood, His holy nation, God's own people. And when we call something holy, we mean Just that, separate, distinct, different. Paul says the same thing in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, beginning in verse 17. He says, therefore, come out from their midst and be separate. Be holy, says the Lord. And do not touch what is unclean, and I will welcome you. And I will be a father to you, and you shall be my sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. The church in our nation is more often than not too much like the world. Entangled with the world's affairs, walking, acting, thinking, and even worshiping in the world's ways. But you, Christian, are a chosen race. You are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, people for God's own possession. What have you done this week that marks you as God's own possession? Have you trusted in Him more than you have trusted your own wits, your own cleverness, your own resources, or your own friends? Have you loved Him more than everything else in your life? Have you lived drastically, noticeably differently than those unconverted idolaters around you? 
For everyone who will not worship our Lord Jesus Christ will by definition worship or trust something else, often themselves, which makes them idolaters. So you may be saying, what are you suggesting we do? Create a little commune or monastery where we can isolate ourselves from the world around us? Build a bigger wall around our church? Move in there and devote ourselves 24-7? Of course not. But I reject the idea on the basis of what Peter says next in this passage we've looked at. In chapter 2, verse 9, he says this. He says, we have been called to be God's people. Not so that we can boast in our election. Not so that we can sit and just soak it all in. He says we have been called to be God's people so that we may proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. We are called to declare the excellencies of God and the salvation through Jesus Christ. In short, we are called to proclaim the gospel to the world. God does not save you for your glory or your boasting or even your convenience. He saves you for His glory alone, solely Deo Gloria. And so being a holy race for us, even more than Israel, consists of being separate from the world and also being on mission to the world. We are commanded to come out from the sin and from the influence of the world into Christ's righteousness and increasing holiness through the Holy Spirit. And also to go back into the world, new creatures, making disciples of all nations. Church, You are the city that is set on a hill. You are the lamp on the stand that sheds the light of the gospel of redemption that God has provided to the world around us. What on earth can be more important than that? I ask each of you, Christian, what have you made more important this last week than that very message? Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, and now you have received mercy. Now some here may be thinking, I can't live like that. It may be that we think we have too much to lose. Or it may be that we don't know how to begin, or we can't speak that well. We've heard that one before. Or that we have failed in the past. I could go on listing reason after reason, excuse after excuse for not leaving the world behind or not proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. But the Bible says you are the people of God and you have been put here to proclaim His excellencies. Our problem is often though simply that we really don't care about others. We're selfish. We think I'm saved. 
That's enough. Why should I put myself out living a life serving Jesus Christ through others? Well, we may not put it into those exact words because that sounds kind of blunt. But that's the idea. As Christians, we often love others in principle. Or we love others in theory, but we don't love them in our lives. We don't love serving them. We don't love their thanklessness. We don't love their greed. We don't love their appearance. We don't love their language. Or we don't love their lifestyle. I guess when we put it that way, perhaps, we may not even love them at all. Because it's not just the pagans of the world. Sometimes we feel that way about our brothers and our sisters in Christ. Because we have forgotten that we are a holy people. Through the grace of Jesus Christ as God's people, we do things differently. We love in the face of ingratitude. We love in the face of hatred. We serve those who cannot possibly do us any earthly good. We don't simply wait for someone to cross our path either. We seek them out so that we may bring the light of Jesus Christ to the least of these. In 1 John chapter 3, verse 18, we're told this. Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed. And in truth, if we are loving only in our hearts, if we are loving only in our minds, are we truly loving? Now, after saying all that, I would warn you, don't let the enemy, the devil, tell you that you are hopeless in following Christ. That you'll never be able to follow Him adequately. You'll never live up to the title of God's holy people because that is a lie and don't listen to the liar. The text of Ezra today gives us the very hope that drives away that demoralizing strategy. For I would call your attention to a phrase you may not have noticed in verse 1 of Ezra 9. I think you might not have noticed it because the great majority of commentators I have read on this passage didn't notice it. At the very beginning of this paragraph, Ezra tells us, the officials approached me. And so why is that such good news? Ezra had been teaching the law for four months based on the dates inside these chapters. From the time he arrived in Jerusalem until the day the officials approached him was about four months. And the result of the encounter with the Word of God, the result of Ezra's teaching led to one thing, and that is repentance. Ezra didn't go and pull them by the beard. 
He didn't go and grab them by the ear and bring them along. He preached the word of God and these men repented. These officials, some of whom had been guilty of this very sin, came to Ezra to confess their sin. God always provides a way back for His people. Is the devil telling you you're not good enough? Then you never will be good enough. Know that God has already made the way plain for you to return to Him. In Isaiah chapter 52, Isaiah recorded for God's people the call back from their exile. Decades before the people were even carried off, Isaiah had written the Word of God that He was going to call them back. And in this specific case, in this chapter 52, it was to the faithless Jews who had fled against Jeremiah's instructions to Egypt, kidnapping him in the process. But you hear God's promise to be delivered to them at the right time. A century before they needed it. If we read in Isaiah 52 verses 11 and 12, listen to what he says. Depart. Depart. Go out from there. Touch no unclean thing. Go out from the midst of her. Purify yourself, you who bear the vessels of the Lord. For you shall not go out in haste, and you shall not go out in flight. For the Lord will go before you, and the God of Israel will be your rear guard. God has made a way for you to return. God has made a way for you to be His holy people right here in Alex City. And He has called you to it. And He will bring repentance to you if you seek to repent. If you want to hold on to your sin, He's not going to bring repentance then. But if you seek to repent, He'll bring you repentance. He will bring you to love Him more if you seek to love Him more, we are exhorted to follow Him out of love. And He will bring you to love others more as you seek to love Him more. If you were in Christ, you are among God's chosen people. You are a holy nation. You are His possession. Let's pray. Our Father, You have done such a great work. A work that we could never accomplish. We would never even think to do. We are captured by this world. We are drawn to the things that this world offers in our flesh. But God, You have remade us. You have freed us from those lusts. You have freed us from those sins. 
And so, God, we pray that each and every day your Spirit would accomplish that process of sanctification, of making us holier people, of separating us more from the world, making us abhor evil in our hearts and cling to what is good. We know that you who have begun a good work in us will be faithful to complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. And that is the day where we will stand before you clothed in his righteousness if we are found in you. Forgive us where we have forgotten. Forgive us where we have returned to the concerns of this world. And teach us each day to follow you more closely, to love you more dearly. It is in the powerful name of Jesus Christ our Lord we pray. Amen.